Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 24. This is God's holy, inspired word. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tortullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere. We accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it's not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But I confess this to you, that according to the way which they called a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and, the pro- and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they have found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it's with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying... When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment... Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this account that brings us encouragement of your continued faithfulness in and through trials. Lord, thank you for this example that you have given to us of how you empower your servant to to stand in the face of accusations, to, to stand for the truth, to witness to your good news. And to trust in you, Lord. Thank you for for giving us this example of faith in you. God, I pray that you would stir up faith in us. God, I pray that you would stir our hearts to respond, to trust in you, Lord, to speak up for you as well. And God, I pray that all of us would respond to you by the grace of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there was an old movie that was produced a little before my time, but I, I got to see it many times growing up. It was, I think, made around 1962, and it was called To Kill a Mockingbird. It came from a book of the same name that I think most people have required reading at some point in high school. It's the fictional story of a lawyer named Atticus Finch who chose to defend Tom Robinson. He was 
a black man who was wrongly and deliberately wrongly accused of a crime he didn't commit by a, a sad, lonely white girl. The movie was, was groundbreaking because it, it confronted the racism and prejudice in the South at the time when the civil rights movement was raging all around and, and, it, and it showed how the lawyer, Atticus, he stood up for the truth despite the lies, despite the twisting of the truth, despite the threats of harm that he experienced because he believed that all people should be treated fairly and that he must stand up for what he believed. He did a masterful job, if you got to either read the book or watch the movie, he did a masterful job in defending his client, Tom Robinson. However, in the end, things didn't turn out so well. The jury didn't listen to the facts, and they find Mr. Robinson guilty. On the way to jail, the deputy shot him and claimed that he ran from the law. And it's, it's really a gripping tale of of right and wrong and the bias of the human heart to defend itself, to want to protect itself. And, and the lesson it teaches, it's good overall. You know, it teaches to stand up for what you believe in and it's realistic too that even if you do stand up for what you believe in, it might not end so well. And it demonstrates though, in addition to those things, how not to respond to the truth. How, in the, in the picture of the jury, how we should not respond when the truth is brought out. And as important as that message is, it it really leaves you with not much hope. Our account from the physician Luke that we have in Acts, it's just as gripping. And and if you get familiar when you're reading the book of Acts, you can just read this as if, oh, that's interesting. But remember that someone real lived through this account. Real people lived through this real account. And it was a gripping courtroom drama. And what we can see... And you can have to imagine the tension, imagine the intrigue a little, since it's really only a brief summary. But we see Paul, he's wrongly being accused for his hope in the gospel. That the truth is being twisted, they're lying about him, they're deceiving. In the end of the passage, you kind of see Felix who hears the truth and is intrigued by it, yet we have a lesson really in how not to respond to the truth in him. Paul stands up boldly for the truth. He wasn't just defending himself. He was, after all, defending the integrity of the gospel. These things he was defending himself against were much more important than his own person. He shares his faith in Jesus consistently and faithfully in this account over two years in prison. I couldn't imagine that. When you get a little despondent, a little discouraged after a couple of years of being left there, when the charges against you are false and you've not had anything stick, it actually exceeds the amount of time that Romans were allowed to be left sitting in a jail without any charges that were true. And yet, we see here that at the end, the governor Felix, he doesn't respond to the conviction that he experiences. And, and throughout this account in Acts, Luke is, is showing the reader what what it looks like for a follower of Jesus to stand up for the truth. And he also shows how we should not respond to the truth. And we're going to see three ways that Paul stood up for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we're going to see at the very end a brief way that Felix rejected the gospel. You know, in the first century, it must have been a question on Christians' minds. How should we respond when we're accused? How should we respond when people wrongly accuse us of things? After all, didn't Jesus, wasn't, wasn't he silent before his accusers? So how should we respond when people accuse us? Should we be quiet like him? Should we just ignore the lies and trust God? Should they respond? Should they take a stand and defend themselves in the gospel? If so, when, when was it appropriate to respond as a believer in the first century? Where should they respond? How should they do that? These kinds of questions, they aren't unfamiliar for us today either, are they? You know, Christians today in the news and the media all around us, maybe your coworkers, friends, relatives, we're often wrongly accused. The truth is twisted. Lies are made exaggerations are put forth. I don't know about you, but have you ever heard the common refrain? I, I was going out and looking for different illustrations and it just, it, it was, it would have been discouraging if I hadn't remembered that we have a risen Lord 
to see that so many people are maligning Christians and saying that they're extremists and radicals and they're the real threat to society. We're the real threat, apparently. I can't count how many times I've heard people claim that they're open-minded and yet they say that Christianity is like a cancer on society that needs to be wiped out. So how should we respond? Should these things frighten us? Should we be discouraged? Should we be surprised? How should we respond when the gospel message is under attack like this? Well, I think Luke's showing us through the example of the Apostle Paul what it looks like to take a stand for the truth of the gospel. And so the first thing that Luke is going to show us is that we see that Luke is being accused for hope in the gospel. He's being accused for hope in the gospel. He's not being accused because he committed a crime or did something wrong. Now, that we need to state. It's not okay for Christians to claim that they're innocent when they've done something wrong. But Paul wasn't facing charges for that. He was accused for his hope. And he was being attacked. But in reality, what was really under attack was the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And Paul saw through that. See, the high priest, he came with his best man, Tertullus. He was a pit bull. He was the chief spokesman, their hired legal gun. He was coming to inform, that word is used five times throughout this passage. He's coming to inform the Roman government of the legal claims against Paul and to make a formal complaint. And, and you, can, you can tell that he knows the, the formal language of the courtroom. You know, today you would say, Your Honor, if it so please the court. But in that day, they used a little different language, and he kind of went over the top as well. And he was ingratiating. He began by honoring Felix for bringing them much peace for having foresight, for making reforms, for being kind. And if you have read history, he could not have been sincere. The Jewish leadership detested Felix's rule, and Antonius Felix was described by historian Tacitus as a master of cruelty and lust. The writer Josephus describes him as regularly crucifying the leaders of various uprisings. The Jews hated Felix, but they're trying to get on his good side. They're trying to use flattery to, to make him see their point of view. And then we're going to see three different tactics that they employ against the Apostle Paul that, that really are still the same kinds of tactics that people use when they malign the good news, when they malign Christianity today. And there's things we can be aware of. Okay, hey, what's going on here? Oh, this isn't any different than that day. And the first thing we see is that there was a twisting of the truth. There's a twisting of the truth. He called Paul a pest or a plague. As if he was a person who's infecting others with a disease, spreading malevolence wherever he went. That's a vivid picture, isn't it? He said, this man's a plague. We see that hatred being spewed and the claim I mentioned earlier that Christianity is a cancer. Why is that? Because people are often offended when the truth is being preached and it bothers their consciences. Sometimes Christians today are characterized as, as being anti-woman because they believe in protecting the rights of unborn babies even though so many girls would be saved. It's a twisting of the truth. Sometimes Christians today are accused of, as being phobic, as being against people who commit certain types of sin when in reality a follower of Christ isn't a person who commits who's against a person who commits a specific type of sin. You know, if you're a Christian, you're not anti any specific type of person or who commits any individual sin. You want to stand for the truth and let people know that all of us have sinned against God. All of us have fallen short. All of us need to repent. We're, we don't stand above others. But a Christian knows that we need to come to know God, to repent of sin, to turn in hope, in him through trusting in Jesus. But that call, it brings offense, just like it brought offense in that day. Paul's preaching and teaching, where, wherever he went, it caused offense to the Jews because they were made to feel guilty, rightly so. They were trusting in themselves and their own ability. They were trusting in the law for justification instead of the promise of God. And so they're saying about Paul, he's a cancer, he's a plague that causes problems. And Tertullus is twisting the truth and he's, he's accusing him of being an agitator, 
Um, that was a, a seditionist, somebody who was, who was a rioter, a terrorist, somebody who stirred up riots. Now, that's not true. Paul, Paul was never that kind of person. Yeah, he might have invoked that kind of response from his preaching, but he wasn't an agitator. He wasn't a seditionist. He wasn't a, a terrorist. At least, he wasn't anymore. And then Paul's accusers, they employed a second commonly used tactic. It was an exaggeration of his errors. It's a tactic that's still used to exaggerate errors. And these are all really ultimately not waging war against flesh and blood. This is what's really going on behind the scenes is that there is a deceiver behind this. You see, the devil always wants to twist the truth, to exaggerate errors, to attack the good news, the gospel. So this isn't about people attacking Paul. This is really about the enemy of our souls wanting to keep the truth suppressed. And so we see an exaggeration of errors. And they said, Paul, he's guilty. Wherever he goes, he goes all throughout the world and all Jews, everywhere. As if Paul has traveled to every nation, as if every Jew he meets, they all are stirred up into riots. But they exaggerated that effect. Paul hadn't even made it to a lot of the places where the Jews lived. He hadn't made it to Rome yet. And then they use a third tactic as well. They employ unsubstantiated insinuations. It's another tactic of the enemy. He twists the truth. He, he, he tells lies. He exaggerates the errors of Christians. And he uses unsubstantiated insinuations. And they accuse Paul. They said, he's a ringleader. He's a, he's a terrorist leader of a sect called the Nazarenes, and, and they're charging Paul as being a sect leader of, of disturbing the peace, and Tertullus is claiming that Felix had, had brought them peace, and yet Paul here, he's disturbing the very peace that you Romans are trying to bring us, as if the Jews really loved the ideas of Roman peace. And Paul, yes, he was a leader, but he was not a leader of bandits or marauders or terrorists. He His accusers didn't bring forward any witnesses like Roman law called for. They didn't bring forward any proof. They were trying to defame him, make him seem to be a threat to the Roman peace. It was one of Felix's main responsibilities to keep. And and Paul, there was a little bit of truth. Paul followed a group that followed Jesus from Nazareth. And yeah, they found Paul in the temple. He He had shaved his head. He was under a Nazarite vow, but he was not any extremist sect. You know, sometimes today we're labeled as extremists, aren't we? For believing in the truth of Jesus. Somehow we can get vaguely lumped in with truly radical religions where people murder and commit terrorist acts. Even though the truth is no true Christian would ever do such things and, and we should be opposed to any such violence. We shouldn't think it's strange though. Paul was seen as a radical for being a Christian. You and I might be seen as radicals for being a Christian. You know, Paul really had once been a radical. He had terrorized Christians. The irony in that, the only time he was a radical is when he was acting on behalf of the high priest. And he was persecuting and maligning and terrorizing the Christians And now the truth is Jesus had stopped him. He had changed him. He had transformed him. And he had given him a mission to bring a message of peace with God through Jesus Christ. The message that Paul preached was now about loving God and loving our neighbor sacrificially by being transformed in, in Jesus Christ. There's no substantiation, no truth in the accusations like they'd done in their case against Jesus. And and I think we're meant to see that all throughout Acts we can see that the followers of Jesus are treated the same way Jesus was as well. And we can see that not only was Jesus wrongly accused, Paul was being wrongly accused. Jesus was brought before the high priest and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and lies were told about him. And now we see Paul in that same situation. And it shouldn't be surprising to us. We see in John 15 and then in Luke 24 that, that Christians, our followers of Jesus, we will be treated like our master. And it shouldn't be surprising. We shouldn't find it odd. And much of what happened to Paul was, was like what happened to Jesus in the fulfillment of what Jesus told his followers in Luke. And Jesus has told Paul personally, you must suffer many things for my name. 
You know, sometimes I'm surprised when I'm wrongly accused for the sake of the gospel. Are you ever surprised? Are you ever surprised when you're accused wrongly? Are you ever surprised when people twist the truth about you? Are you ever surprised when you're maligned, when people exaggerate your errors, when you have unsubstantiated kind of vague allegations? You ever get angry and defensive? When the governor gave him a nod, Paul made his defense. And it says something strange. He said he made his defense cheerfully. That's a, that's a little surprising. Um, Paul's not using hyperbole. He says, because you're the governor, I'm going to make my defense cheerfully. And so we, after we see Paul accused for his hope in the gospel, we see the second emphasis from Luke that really takes up the bulk of the passage in verses 10 through 21. And we're going to see that Paul is defending hope for the gospel. Why is Paul defending himself? Why is Paul not doing what Jesus did and standing silent before his accusers? What is this all about? Why is Paul doing this? Well, it's because he's defending hope for the sake of the gospel. It's different from Jesus, isn't it? Remember what Jesus said at his trial? Do you remember his defense? If you're having a hard time, that's okay. He, he didn't say really anything in his own defense. And so maybe you're reading this thing. Why is Paul saying anything now? Is this okay? Is it right for Christians to say anything in our defense or in defense of the gospel? Or should we just take the wrong accusations silently? What should we do? How do we relate to society around us? Well, I think Luke's giving us an example from Paul that argues for not keeping silent when the gospel message is threatened. That we must not keep silent. And see, Jesus was silent before his accusers for the sake of those who'd received the gospel. Had he not been silent, none of us would have any grounds for faith because he was silent If he had defended himself, then he would not have taken punishment for us. The reason Jesus was silent before his accusers is because he took the punishment that we deserve that he did not deserve. And so that we might come to know him, so that we might go free because of his punishment, he was silent before his accusers. But now we see in Paul he stands up, he speaks up, and, he, and, and so that people can hear the good news. Paul wasn't being defensive, and you need to take note of that too. When, um, often I think there's a temptation, each one of us to want to be defensive. But really we're not thinking about Jesus, we're not thinking about the good news, we're defending ourselves. We're taking offense personally instead of thinking, okay, how does this affect the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And he wasn't defending himself for the sake of, of self-defense alone, it was for the gospel so that the good news could be preached and received. You see, this defense was important. The Jews needed to see that this was not some heretical doctrine. The Romans needed to see this was not a threat. And they needed to see these things so that the gospel could be preached freely and people could receive the gospel. And that's important for us today as well. Wherever the message of the gospel is maligned, we need to speak up and, and explain things lovingly, graciously, but clearly and boldly and say, no, That's not what Jesus is all about. No, that's not the good news. No, that's not how my Savior has called us to live as Christians. Let me explain the good news. Let me explain the reason that I have for the hope that lies within me. Paul here, he's not not mean-spirited or angry. He's bold, but he's not angry. He's not mean-spirited. He's respectful, which was shocking to me. You know, he's, he's getting all these lies and, and accusations thrown against him, but he's respectful. And that's a lesson for us, isn't it? His, his motive, it was defending the message that he preached. You know, I wonder if that's our motive as well, is that when we hear people malign Christianity, do we do one or two things? Do we back off and say, well, I'll just trust God with that? Instead of saying, well, wait a minute, maybe God has called me to speak. Maybe God has called me to speak for the truth, no matter what that might mean for me personally. And then the other question we have is, what's our motive? Are we seeking to defend the gospel, or are we just seeking to defend ourselves? Because we want people to think well of us. There's a difference, isn't there? We need to inspect our own motives to make sure we aren't being defensive or self-preservationist, but we also need to inspect our motives to make sure we aren't fearing man and that we speak the truth. But we speak it lovingly, but we speak the truth. Our concern is to be for the reputation of Jesus Christ and the integrity of the good news about him so people might hear and respond to the good news. How do we speak, though? 
What do we do? Do we sit silently when we should speak up? Do we speak up arrogantly, rudely, and angrily when we should speak humbly? Well, Paul, he begins by stating the plain and true facts. He's not, he doesn't candy coat things. He doesn't kiss up to Felix. He just says, hey, because you've been the governor here, I'm going to cheerfully make my defense. You know, he says, I've only been in Israel for 12 days. Five days I've been here, you know. It was as Felix knows he'd been, he's been in custody for five days. He also knows it took two days to get there. So that's seven days out of the last 12 days that Paul couldn't have done anything, couldn't have stirred up rebellion. So, you know, in five days, what, he's going to stir up this massive Israel-wide rebellion? Is what Paul's saying? Look, Felix, give me a break. I've only been here 12 days, right? And, I, and I'm new in town. I've been gone for a lot of years, and he states the facts, and he says, besides that, where they found me, I wasn't raising a dispute. I was actually in the temple. I purified myself. I was giving alms for the poor, and I was making an offering. I wasn't doing anything wrong. They found me actually purified in the temple. And then he uses this moment to, to brilliantly confess his faith. He said, you know, the only thing I, I am guilty of, if, if that really is something to be guilty of, is that I confess that I have a hope he says, I, I hope that I, I worship in the God of our fathers, the same God they worship. He's normalizing things, saying, look, this isn't some heresy, some weird doctrine. And so he establishes his orthodoxy, testifies he believed everything laid down by the law written in the prophets, and he's showing that actually Christianity is the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament. It's not contrary to that. This is God's revelation over thousands of years, culminating in Jesus Christ. And that should give us confidence. Paul had confidence in saying this because he knew it to be true. We can have confidence in stating the facts about who Jesus is. You don't have to be tentative in stating what we believe and why we believe it. And that Jesus is the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament, the law, the prophets. And then he, he, Paul establishes that his belief in the resurrection was not heretical. It was a widely accepted Jewish belief. Just, and he says, all these men here, they, they have a hope too. And I have a hope. Let me tell you though. I've got normative, rational beliefs. I'm not promoting a cult. And do you notice though that what Paul is testifying of, he doesn't testify about his preferences and his, his little pet dogmas. What Paul testifies of the central truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. And he doesn't let anything else obscure that. You know, I, I think at times we need to make sure that we're not letting anything else, our preferences, obscure the, the message of the good news of Jesus Christ and who he is. And then he testifies something that's really, Paul says for the second time now we've seen in the last two chapters, he says, I, I've got a clear conscience before God and man. That's that's astounding. I, I, he says, I take great pains to have, I've always taken great pains and believe me, it's painful when you seek to have a clear conscience, isn't it? He says, I take great pains before God and man to have a clear conscience. And this really enabled him. What's he doing? It gave him a platform to, to show that he, he's practicing what he preaches. He has integrity. The message he's preaching is lined up with his life. And so many times as Christians, sadly, to our shame, our lives don't match up with what we proclaim. And yet we see the example that Paul was able to have a foundation and to make a defense of Christianity because his life testified to the gospel. And as I was reading this, I was convicted. I was like, can I, can I always say, can we always say that we take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man for the sake of the good news? And Paul, he continues to state facts and he highlights that he's bringing alms and gifts and he's not trying to benefit personally is what he's showing. He's not, he's not seeking his own gain, dishonest gain. And in fact, he's being benevolent. He's being generous. And, and maybe that's what tempted Felix later on to want money because he's thinking, hey, Paul went around all around Asia collecting money. Maybe Paul's got a lot of cash. Maybe he's got a big offering that maybe I can, maybe I can use that to my advantage. And Paul tells Felix, he says, you know, the men who accuse me aren't even here. The Asian, the, the Asian Jews who, who, who accuse me wrongly, they're not even at this hearing. And by the way, that would have been contrary to Roman law, which required the accusers to come and stand. And the Romans had no time for a person who made an accusation and didn't stand and make their accusation. 
They had a derogatory name for that kind of person, actually. And then Paul admitted, he says, you know, it's only with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. He's using every opportunity to to show what his hope is. His hope's in the resurrection of the dead in Jesus Christ. And, you know, that's something that God's been emphasizing over the last few weeks, I think, from from Easter and then last week and, and this week as well. Where is our hope? Can we say that that we are standing with a hope in the resurrection from the dead in Jesus Christ and that he is our resurrection hope? And if so, does that produce joy in your life? Are you experiencing his resurrection life in you because you have a hope in in resurrection life that he gives you? And Felix, though, he doesn't seem interested in hearing anything in response to the Jews. He kind of dismisses any kind of rebuttal from them. And then Luke says that Felix possessed a rather accurate knowledge of the way. That's probably because they were 15 years earlier, there were at least 15,000 Christians in Israel at the time. And so I can't imagine how many more Christians by this time are in Israel. And since he was the governor of the province of Judea, he would have been aware of such a large population and, and what they believed. It would have been in his best interest to do that. And then he puts... Paul in kind of a modified custody. His friends are allowed to come and attend to his needs. Um, He's allowed to go wherever he wants. He might have a guard with him. Because Felix knows he's not guilty of anything. And yet he keeps Paul in custody as a favor to the Jews. And then Luke gives us one short sentence in verse 24. Look down your Bibles. It shows a third example of Paul sharing faith in the gospel. He's sharing faith in the gospel. Look in verse 24. Luke writes, After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul. This is remarkable. He says he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. He sent to hear him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Apparently, both Felix, the governor of the province of Judea, and his wife, Drusilla, they were both interested in hearing more about the faith in Jesus Christ. Luke just kind of writes shorthand. He says she was Jewish. He, he kind of glosses over some things. Maybe he didn't write any more about her because it was probably the nicest thing he could say about Drusilla. She was more than just Jewish. She was very Jewish. She was the sister of King Agrippa and Bernice that we're going to see next week in chapter 25 of Acts. She was known to be very beautiful. She'd been seduced from her previous husband by Felix. But she was of a very perverted lineage. She was the daughter of Herod Agrippa. You know, the same Herod who'd martyred James. She was the granddaughter of the Herod who beheaded John and before whom Jesus had stood. The great-granddaughter of Herod the Great who sought to kill Jewish boys in order to destroy Jesus. She was of a long line of brutal Jews who were against the faith in Jesus. And yet, somehow... This most unlikely candidate to seek to hear the good news is hearing the good news. And and that's meant to, I think, encourage us. I want you to be encouraged to know that God God can, can use you and I to speak to even the most egregious person, the people we think are the furthest from God. God can work on their hearts. Maybe she was curious about Paul as her father had been about John the Baptist at one time, but Maybe she was curious because of Paul's obvious integrity, because of his zeal, his character was evident. Who knows? So they both hear Paul speak about his faith in Jesus Christ. I can imagine Paul, he must have spoken passionately and honestly and earnestly and with joy and with conviction. Think about a fresh example of that. And this past week I was in a, a new optical place called Stanton Optical. They opened on Woodruff Road the other day. I was going to get a cheap eye exam. Um, on the personal medical background sheet, you know, they always ask for your profession, and so I put that down, and it's kind of always this, this funny, kind of interesting experiment when I put, put down what I do for a living. Some people react and just shut down and don't talk to you at all when they find out you're a pastor, and other people, they change, and it's kind of bizarre. Um, this lady, though, that I talked to her, she was cheerful when I came in, she was joyful, she was kind of using some Christian lingo, and I thought, huh, interesting. I came out from my exam, and, and um, she just began sharing her hope when I asked her, you know, how's your day going? She goes, you know, my, my day's going great. No matter what kind of day I'm having, 
you know, if we keep the right perspective, we can, we can always have a good day because Jesus, Jesus has won the victory for me. And so she's talking joyfully and openly. This, the waiting room was full of people, and they were kind of like looking up at her really weirdly, and her coworker was like giving her a sideways glance. And, and she was just joyful, and it was obvious that she meant it, and it wasn't a put on, it wasn't fake. You know what I mean? You can tell the difference, right? You can tell somebody's being like that sickly, sweet, fakey, and somebody's really being joyful, and she was joyful. And she talked about her hope in Jesus, no matter what, what, what had happened, that he's already taken care of the most important thing and that he's defeated her, my sins. And, and she shared about how life can be hard, but there's always hope and, and her joy and her, her boldness in talking about Jesus. I remember this just a few days ago, I was being convicted and thinking, wow, I want to be like that. I want to I cheerfully give a reason for the hope that lies within me. And what's keeping me from doing that? Maybe I'm overly concerned with what people around me think about me. Maybe, I, maybe I've forgotten the good news and just that, that resurrection hope that we have. And, and, you know, I would like to have heard her story. I was thinking, well, I'd like to spend all day here. I've got stuff to do. Unfortunately, I can't. But I could just spend like an hour talking to this lady, just listen to her. It was fun just to hear her. It was evident she was being genuine. It wasn't a put-on. She wasn't being fake. Her her joy, her cheerfulness were intriguing. I wonder if that's kind of the effect that the Apostle Paul had. Here's this guy who's making a defense and he's in jail and yet he says, I'm cheerfully making my defense. You're like, that's a little strange. But it was genuine, it wasn't put on. And I think it was because of his resurrection hope. You know, I walked out from the optical place on, on Thursday and I thought, you know, that's, that's how I want to be. And you know, don't you want to be like that too? Don't you want to be free to share your love for Jesus? Don't you want to have that kind of effect where you genuinely and, and cheerfully and openly talk about God and you're not concerned? There's something compelling about it when somebody really believes what they're saying and they talk about it from the overflow of their hearts. And, and you know, often I'm not that way. I can get weighed down. What, you know, think about some of the things that keep us from that. I can get weighed down with my own self-centered concerns, the cares of the world. I can, I can live self-focused and selfishly. Sometimes I let the demands of what I have to do become larger than they should be and I'm so focused on what I gotta get done instead of remembering what has been done. And I can lose perspective on what's most important, lose perspective on the most important thing in life that Jesus has done for me. And you know what, I can, I can tend to forget, and I wonder if this is true for you, I can tend to forget all of the blessings and the grace that God has poured out on me. Do you ever do, you ever do that? Do you ever get so aware of your tr- current troubles that you forget what God's done for you and that your future is secure in him, that he's poured out blessings and grace and mercy on you. ever forget those things? You ever out the cares of life and your work situation, your home life or whatever or uh, peers make you feel like that they're bigger than God? You know, not, not being a fake, not pretending everything is okay, Paul had this steady peace, this joy in the midst of things not being okay because I think he knew what had, was most important had already been taken care of. You know, there, there's a saying that a guy named Jerry Bridges, he's getting up there in age now, um, he, he made popular about 30 years ago and he said, you know, we need to preach the good news to ourselves every day. Why? Because we so easily forget it. It's not just for when we become a believer, but it's, it's for every day. Because it shapes our perspective, it shapes our hope, and, and the crux of Paul's testimony was his resurrection hope, and I wonder if that's our hope. Hasn't, hasn't Jesus already done what we could never do? Hasn't he rescued us? Hasn't he redeemed us? Hasn't he given us all that we need for life and godliness? Isn't, the, isn't that true? If so, that should produce something in us, Right? And sometimes we focus on everything we don't have and what we're challenged with, and I'm just as guilty of that. But we see Paul, he's sharing his faith with them, his reasoning with them about the righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. And you think about who he's talking to. Why is he talking about righteousness and self-control and coming judgment? He's talking to adulterers. He's sharing boldly, but he's not being mean. He's, he's not condemning them for their sins, but he's saying, you know, probably saying things like without 
Without perfect righteousness, no one can see God, and yet Jesus has become our righteousness. He's, he's saying that we, without self-control, none of us will be pleasing to God, yet none of us can have this self-control without the Holy Spirit making us alive and enabling us. And that all of us, unless we are righteous and perfectly self-controlled, all of us will be judged and, and receive the just wrath of God. And he's speaking these things boldly to Felix and Drusilla. And we see in verses 25 to 27, finally, is an example really of how not to respond to the gospel. What, what, what is this? This is a negative example, an example of how not to respond in hearing the good news. Look down your Bibles in verse 25. Luke writes something. He says, just three little words, but they're telling, aren't they? He says, Felix was alarmed. Felix was alarmed. And then he asked Paul, go, go away for the present. He's alarmed. He says, go away from the present. When I get opportunity, I'll summon he's, he's feeling guilty. He puts Paul out because he's being challenged. He was alarmed. He was convicted. He, he was alarmed because he knew the things Paul said were true. He was alarmed because he knew that judgment was coming for him. And if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I want you to be alarmed. But I want you to have hope by placing your faith in Jesus Christ and saying, I can't be righteous on my, I can't be good enough on my own. I can't be self-controlled. God, I can't do this. I need to place my faith, my trust in you. Thank you, Jesus, that you were righteous for me, that you made a way when, when there was no other way, that I can be restored to relationship with God, that you can give me your spirit. But we don't see that here, do we? We see Felix, he's confronted with the fact that he doesn't meet God's righteous requirements and he's probably personally affected. He's with his third wife by now, Drusilla. He, he lured her away when she was still another man's wife. And I can imagine Felix was intrigued, but he, was, he must have realized that actually responding and obeying what Paul told him and mean requiring that he turn away from his present life, it would cost Felix something. You see, the good news always costs something. But what we receive in return is an eternal inheritance that can never perish. The riches of this world, they fade, they pass away. But he gives us riches that will last forever in this life and the life to come. And I'm not talking about finances, although at times God blesses with that. He doesn't always, but he always, he always gives us himself. So Felix wants to hear from Paul. He says he's alarmed. The idea of judgment to come it must have been new to Felix and he's alarmed. It makes him uncomfortable. At the same time, he wasn't ready to change. He was, he was looking for a way to profit from Paul. He's got mixed motives like many of us, like many people we encounter. Uh, if you see that they have bad motives, don't assume that's the only motive they have. God can be working on their hearts as well. Like he's working on Felix's heart. He has mixed motives. He's, he's alarmed because he's convicted. At the same time, he's still tempted by trying to get rich because he knows that Paul went around all these places collecting an offering. And so, with mixed motives, Felix sins for him often. It must have been just something more than just money, because after a while, Felix has got to realize, this dude is not going to offer me a bribe. Maybe after the first year, Felix putting some hints down, like, so Paul, if you, um, uh, yeah, if you, you know, if you kind of go out with me, and maybe if you were to make some kind of donation to the Roman government, the things will go well for you. But he, he didn't. And so Paul, after a year or so, he, boy, he had, to, he had to realize. And yet, Felix keeps coming back. He keeps hearing. And we don't ultimately know what he did with the truth. But from history, it does not seem like he responded to the truth of the gospel. And from this account, he does not respond. But it wasn't up to Paul to make Felix respond. Like, just like it's not up to any of us to make the people we speak to respond. It's just to, up to us to be faithful and to continue to talk about our faith even in confinement. And the sad news is that Felix and Drusilla are a model of what not to do, of how not to respond to the good news. They don't receive the gospel. They don't repent. They don't believe. Even though there was obvious conviction. In the end, he doesn't respond. He hears Paul talk about truth. We never see him convicted again. It's something interesting. He's convicted at the outset, and then he, he keeps talking to Paul for two years, but we never read of him being convicted again. I was thinking about that. You know, he, 
when you experience conviction, it's important to respond. That conviction may not come again. Don't assume when God convicts you of something that that conviction is going to keep coming back again. There is a condition where we can harden, even believers can, can harden your hearts. Several times throughout Scripture in the New Testament, there's a warning to believers to not harden your hearts. You know, don't just put yourself in the place of Paul. Put yourself in the place of Felix as well. Before we look down on him, we have to ask ourselves, how much like Felix are we? When we're convicted by the truth of Scripture, when the Holy Spirit's convinced us we need to change and respond to a message, what do we do with it? We only see Felix convicted once, and he keeps hearing, and I think that's a warning for us, even though we might hear the same truth over and over, we may not be convicted if we reject the conviction and don't respond when it comes. You are never guaranteed the gift of conviction to come again and again. There's a hardening of the heart that can take place when we ignore the Holy Spirit speaking to your conscience. Paul, he warned the church about this in Ephesians 4, and this was a solid church, a good church. And in Ephesians 4, verses 17, I don't know if we have this one up there or not. I think we do. Excellent. Paul says, Now I, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. He's saying, don't be like the Gentiles due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous. How? They've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that's not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him or taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, respond to the conviction, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and it's corrupt through deceitful desires. So he's, he's warning, we can be corrupted by deceitful desires. And he says, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. He doesn't, he's warning people not to fall away and receive his his wrath of God, and to be sure that you have responded, to don't harden your heart. And in Romans 2, 4, Paul's speaking again, he says in Romans 2, 4, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness? Hear that question to all of us. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and, and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to Repentance. But because of your hardened and penitent hearts, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgments will be revealed. So he's, he's, he's speaking to people who might think they are believers. Presuming upon God. And this one I don't have for you in the overheads. It's in, in Hebrews 3, 7. Speaking to believers. The encouragement the author of Hebrews gives us says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked in that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I swore my wrath. They shall not enter my wrath. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Felix is an example of, of how not to respond to conviction that I think we, we all need to take notice of. In his commentary on Acts, Pastor Kent Hughes, he, he writes about this theme too. And he says, whenever we come under conviction while hearing the truth, we must take immediate action or suffer spiritual loss. If the Spirit is prompting us to teach, we must quickly take steps to do so. If He's moving us to give, we must do it. If He's prompting some ethical or social involvement, we must respond. One of the reasons, this was convicting, one of the reasons some evangelical churches have such a weak social and ethical witness is that they have ignored God's voice so long they can no longer hear it. If God is speaking, we must answer. One of the reasons Paul was so effective and had a strong social and ethical witness is because he, he responded 
and always took pains to have a clear conscience before God and man. And and, in reverse, some of us have a weak social and ethical witness, as Ken Hughes said, that we receive God's voice so long we can no longer hear it because we've ignored it. If God's speaking, though, we must answer. The question for each of us today is, where's God given us this gift of conviction? How's God called us to respond to him? If you have not placed your faith in Jesus, don't assume that you'll be willing to respond sometime later. If God's speaking to your heart now, respond to him now. If, as I've been preaching or teaching or maybe in the past weeks, when God has spoken through his word that is living and active and appears to the division of soul and spirit, bone and marrow, don't neglect the conviction God's brought to you. If God's speaking, let's be committed to softening our hearts, respond in obedience and faith, and let's, let's be bold to speak up for him, not for ourselves necessarily, but to defend the good news so that others might hear and explain a reason for the hope that lies within us with boldness and yet with gentleness and respect. We're all called to respond to God and his word as he speaks to us, and let's there be no procrastination, no putting off But instead, let's all receive. Let's all stand up for what God says to us and respond eagerly, trusting his complete forgiveness, by the way. That's how we're enabled to respond because of God's grace that has come to us freely. Um, Anything you are thinking about, any sin you are convicted of, you have already, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you have already been completely forgiven of. There is therefore now no condemnation, so we shouldn't be mired down and, and fearful of admitting areas of weakness and failure. Why? Because those have already been taken care of. So now we can respond boldly and say, yeah, God convicted me here, and thanks be to God, that was a mercy and kindness And he's going to enable me to respond. And I'm free from that sin. And trust in his cleansing and enabling power. And then let's together commit to strive to enter his rest. The resting from our own works of self-righteousness and self-confidence. And resting in his works of righteousness. Trusting in his work and his rest as we respond to God in faith. Amen. Let's stand. And as you're standing, uh, the band will go ahead and come up.